Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Toxic working environments sneak up on you sometimes. They're not all aggressive or in your face. It can happen slowly and kind of like a bad or even abusive relationship. It can be kind of like a slow burn. And then you wake up nine months later and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> There's something really, really not right here. I think the causes come down to a few things like lack of boundaries. And that can fuel stuff like this idea that we're a family here. If I hear that, that is a red flag. It's like, absolutely no thank you. Like families are complex enough as it is and you can't choose yours, right? But you can definitely, for the most part, choose where you work. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast with me, your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. This show is about giving you a pause to nurture and nourish your mind, body, and soul. Each week, I speak to world experts, authors, scientists, and inspirational leaders to share their wisdom and advice so we can all live better from the inside out and reach our full potential. I hope you join me on the journey. Hello, and on today's show, I have Kate Sevilla, the author of How to Work Without Losing Your Mind. And wow, is this book relatable. If you've had a problem at work, experienced burnout, had a difficult relationship with a colleague, or got a toxic boss, then this book is for you. I read it and I basically highlighted the entire thing, having gone through all of the above. And I really think mental wellness at work isn't spoken about enough, and yet it can be one of the greatest factors in affecting how we feel on a daily basis. So I was really excited to dig in with Kate about what are the potential problems in the workplace and how we can navigate them. Kate was a founding member of BuzzFeed UK, and since then she's gone to work in startups to multinationals. She's a voice of reason and here to break down some myths around the illusion of girl bossing and leaning in, which is another thing I really enjoyed hearing from when we spoke in this episode, because sometimes there is this unbelievable pressure we feel to be performing the whole time. And given what's happening at the moment and the uncertainty with, you know, jobs and the fact we're working from home more than ever, I think it couldn't be more of a relevant episode to be putting out. So I hope you enjoy it. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hmm, I think one at the moment is perfect is the enemy of good because I I don't even know who said that. I know one of my friends said it to me in the past, so I don't know its origin, so I'm sorry to the author, but I really have to remind myself of that, especially when you're doing new things, especially this year, which has been such a challenge. I think sometimes you just kind of have to go, you know what? This is good enough. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, preach. Yeah, we are, <laughs> we are so here for that. Um, being the Not Perfect podcast. Yes, I mean, <laughs> very much here for that. Um, what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? Perspective. Just having a, a kind of keen awareness of what you actually want and why are you doing like what is the point of all the work that you're putting into something if you kind of don't know the why so I think for me it's really been about gaining a better perspective that's kind of driven by my own my own desire my own wants um, rather than kind of external factors which may have been kind of the you know main factor in the past so so true it does sound so simple these things we forget it this is what's so crazy about it it's so simple but yet it is so easy to be derailed so it's just so nice when someone you know like yourself just goes yeah I've been reminded of perspective recently and all of us go huh yeah (laughs) me too (laughs) how do you define happiness I think it's not having an expectation for how you think you should be feeling. Um, And I I mentioned this in the book, talking about a rival fallacy. So if you have a goal for yourself, thinking that that's going to be the end-all, be-all moment. Uh, I don't think happiness is a moment, uh, just like a marriage isn't a wedding day, you know? I think happiness is a really, really difficult thing to define, but I, I I know a lot of what it isn't. And it isn't just a singular moment, a singular person, a job title, a book. It's it's none of those singular things. It's a it's a collective. Again, what a good reminder for all of us, um, especially when you know it's actually this time of year where you kind of feel like you know you can be extra judgmental on yourself, being like, "Why did I not yeah. do this? Why did I not do that?" And this idea that you know goes into that kind of arrival fall- fallacy that we feel like at some point we should have arrived and everything, you know, we should have reached that point where everything's fine. And I think that is really, really powerful. So thank you for saying that. Um, Let's dive into your book. It had me (laughs) nodding my head uh, for the entire way through just that every page I'd be like, Oh, relate. Oh gosh. Yeah. Relate to that. Oh yes. Relate to that. Why did you want to write this book in the first place? It's kind of twofold. I selfishly wanted to process some stuff and kind of get, onto paper, uh, my experiences, my, my thoughts around things um, having to do with work and our relationship with work. But also I wanted to write something that would help like 
the woman who lives two doors down from me because I feel so many business books are aimed at people who are entrepreneurs or CEOs or um, exist in a very different world. And while I know so many people did connect with Lean In, it also was kind of alienating for quite a few people because that's not the, the life that they have. And maybe they don't want a corner office. Maybe they don't want a to be in a management position at a big corporation. So I, I wanted to write something that was more relatable and just kind of realistic for like your average person going to work who's having a hard time and is ugly crying in the lose like I was. <laughs> One of the quotes that you try to rewrite in the book, you know, be the CEO that, you know, you're parents want you to marry and then you add on or don't be it if you don't want to and <laughs> yeah. I just really appreciate that because I completely agree with you the culture of girl bossing has actually mm. gone from something that the intention at the beginning you know by these brands by these people that are put forth is always really good but then it gets stretched and amplified so much that actually it ends up making so many people feel bad for like not wanting that to you like what is the most kind of damaging and dangerous thing of these like really fierce I guess messages that we've kind of found from Lean In and these other books? Yeah, I think the worst part of it is that it's very binary. It makes success look like it's one thing and that the way to get there is also one way. I think the kind of girl boss culture and burnout go hand in hand. That's the kind of danger, but then also that it doesn't acknowledge that there are different personality types. There's different ways of working that success isn't just one thing. And it's not just millennial pink and black branded either. You know, I say that wearing like a millennial pink jumper. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I say this having built a millennial pink brand. Like I, yeah. I fully, fully like have been in that situation. I'm sure I've been sometimes part of the problem and I'm really aware of it. It's difficult because there are elements of it that I, that aren't necessarily all bad or have negative intentions that kind of brand of feminism and capitalism kind of like go hand in hand in a really messed up way and we were kind of packaged this watered down version of ambition and as I said it was all just very binary and this is the way that you're supposed to work and this is how you boss it well like what if I don't want to boss it (laughs) what if if I just want to make enough money to then be able to go and do other things that I care about and there's kind of like no acknowledgement that there are other ways to live that there are other ways to be happy and to succeed and I'm wondering when this fascination with kind of Silicon Valley tech dudes and that that being like a blueprint for not only how a a business should look or succeed, but how a leader looks and succeeds. Because I think along with that kind of girl boss thing is um, this male eccentric, quote unquote, that sort of CEO, that sort of leader, these things don't all look one way. And yet they've been so glamorized and young leaders have been so glamorized and it completely alienates the people who have founded a business or done something new in their 40s or 50s or even 60s, you know. We need a much broader view and a bigger celebration for the different types of leaders, the different types of um, entrepreneurs and the the different types of workers who all contribute to our society in, in different ways. 
I read, I think, recently that actually the most successful entrepreneurs are late 30s because you have all the wisdom, you've had experience and you're probably making a lot less mistakes. You know, a greater problem with, you know, us celebrating young success is that the pressure it then puts on young people. So suddenly you're 23 wondering why you haven't founded Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's insane, really, because it's like, wh- what are you, you're meant to be figuring stuff out still. Like, you really are still just not a baby, but you, you know, your brain just stopped finishing developing only a few years prior. <laughs> like, we, we need to allow people to learn. And I think that whole learning process, that maturing process it has just been kind of eradicated for so many people and i think really has a big impact on 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 that kind of view of of success and the way the ways that we work so i would just love to kind of dive into why can work get so toxic and what are some of the signs that we can all look out for that you're in a toxic work environment i know this sounds like a simple question but i've spent months and woken up being like that has been horrible but yeah i haven't been aware of it yeah, no, it's it's not a simple question. It's it's hard. Um, toxic working environments sneak up on you sometimes. They're not all super aggressive or in your face. It can happen slowly and you, kind of like a bad or even abusive relationship. It can be kind of like a slow burn and then you wake up nine months later and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> There's something really, really not right here. I think the causes for toxic working environments come down to a few things like lack of boundaries. And that can fuel stuff like this idea that we're a family here. Um, welcome to the family. Like if I hear that, that is a red flag. It's like absolutely no thank you. Like families are complex enough as it is and you can't choose yours, right? But you can definitely for the most part choose where you work. And then also this this kind of encouragement, which I talk about in the book of bringing your whole self to work. I think it kind of goes hand in hand with people trying to make it so that they're like, hey, guys, we know mental health is a thing. So we're like totally fine with that and very cool with it. And also bring your whole self to work. Like we love authenticity here. And usually that's a lie and they don't know what to do with people's actual authentic selves because our authentic selves are complex. There's light, there's dark as well. And uh, if you don't have those boundaries in place and you don't really have a good grip on how to actually be authentic at work while kind of still having boundaries, that's another big element, I think, for, for a toxic working environment. I guess the kind of the theme is this kind of confusion of where the boundaries, whether it's kind of how authentic can you actually be or when actually can you switch off? They say in parenting, for example, children having clear boundaries is the most important thing for a child to feel safe. And you write in your book about psychological safety. What is psychological safety and how do you create it? Yeah, so this was something that I had never <laughs> I'd never heard of before. And what it basically is, it's when you're working like in a team of people and if you feel psychologically safe, you can go, "Hey, I have this crazy idea." Or 
actually, I think in saying this, like your manager, oh, actually, I think we might have missed something here. Amy Edmondson, who who coined the term, actually has like a really interesting example where um, like they were comparing like two, I think, medical teams and the kind of psychological safety between them and who is more successful and who is like making the most mistakes. And they found that actually the teams with the most psychological safety kind of succeeded the best because they were, they actually had a higher rate of making mistakes. And it kind of comes down to like creativity, right? Like if you're meant to be working in a creative working environment and kind of coming up with ideas, but you are so scared to speak up and to say what your, what your ideas are, like you can't brainstorm properly if you're fearful that your boss is going to be like, no, that's a terrible idea. You know, (laughs) without psychological safety, it means that no one is going to speak up no one is going to ask questions. No one is going to contribute a wild idea. People aren't going to collaborate properly because they're afraid to kind of speak and have a voice and to put their their vulnerable ideas out there. How do you create more psychological safety? And do you think that you can create it not being a boss? So let's say you're employed somewhere. Can psychological safety be created from bottom up or does it have to be top down? I think it really depends on where you work. I think it's something that you can absolutely kind of encourage uh, with your peers, with your colleagues. So if you're kind of, um, even if you're not leading a team, if you know that, okay, we have, you know, X amount of days to kind of come up with a presentation to pitch to, to our manager in, in that working environment, you can absolutely try to build that just within your kind of team of peers that you're working in. And it's really hard, unfortunately, I think, to kind of change a working culture or a working environment from the from the bottom up only. But I think you can definitely instill it within your peers and the way that you work with others. Women are, though, disproportionately affected when it comes to experiencing toxic work environments. Why is that? The kind of first things that pop to mind are the fact that uh, misogyny is still very much a thing out in the workplace, as is um, racism and prejudice of all different kinds. But I think there's also this point where we have to work harder. And I still very much believe that. I think that we don't all start out on an even playing field. And different women, so if you're a woman of color, you start out on a much different playing field as well. So I think that that plays a part in it. I think that we're not taught to compete or to be comfortable with ambition or to be comfortable competing with each other if it's for something other than the attention of a man or romantic uh, love interest. I think that the world of work has not adjusted to having women I mean, you look at the the numbers for board members and CEOs and founders and the wage gap and the ethnicity pay gap as well. There's all of these factors that just the data shows you women are still not treated equal at work. And there's so many factors that go into that. So it's like a really kind of loaded system and then kind of addressing the kind of relational things that go on between women as well. So I have like a whole <laughs> a whole chapter on envy and jealousy in the workplace. And I think that just relationally, women are not really told that we can dislike each other, that we can argue with each other, that we can compete with each other. 
And then also that we don't have to be comparing ourselves to each other. There's so many like societal <laughs> um, systems in place and messaging that just means that everything is so fraught so that we go into the workplace where things are not like they, like they tolerate us, but they're not giving us, you know, an equal playing field by any means. Like it was only so many years ago that women weren't even allowed in boardrooms. Like, so we've come a long way, but we still have a heck of a long way to go. And so much of that isn't even down to us. It's down to the kind of systems that exist. Yeah, it's a really powerful point in knowing what we should be proactively unlearning. And I mm. feel that in your chapter around jealousy and envy to unlearn this idea that we can't be competitive because I know, you know, I was brought up to be competitive at sport and stuff, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, it was ugly for a girl to want to win. Yeah. What part can we play in this as individuals to change this? Yeah. I think maybe some of it is internalized misogyny where it's not when you see another woman being kind of audaciously ambitious and going after what she wants think the immediate thing is to go, oh, <laughs> mm. well, that's a bit much. She's a bit much. That's a lot. That's too aggressive. I think it's kind of, even in those instances, being able to kind of check yourself and go, wait a minute, why do I think that? And is it because I wish I was doing that and I wish that I felt free enough to do that or is unafraid to do that and to kind of uh, audaciously go after what it is that I want. I think that that has to kind of be the starting point because it's it's a huge problem. It's really complex, um, but I think it kind of has to start just in our own judgments of other women because those are really judgments of ourselves. Yeah, and then it releases you as soon as you kind of go. Actually, what's yes. this triggering in me? It's amazing. You're like, oh, whew, well, I worked out that little Rubik's cube in my mind. It feels quite satisfying. Yes. So I would love to dive into the subject of terrible bosses because this yes. chapter resonated. I think we have can all share a lot of stories about horrific bosses. Um, and I couldn't believe what you wrote um, that 80% of women also admit to struggling um, with their relationship with their boss. What are the most common bad behaviors that are found in bosses that are troublesome? Oh, goodness. Um, there are many. <laughs> I think one of the biggest ones goes along with um, being a micromanager. So working for somebody who doesn't respect uh, your time or your expertise or uh, the boundaries that you've that you've set for yourself. Bad managers are usually really disrespectful, whether intentionally or not, of other people's time. They don't respect when they just kind of cancel a meeting five minutes after it was meant to start. And it's something that you had been preparing for, for who knows what. They just either don't show up or don't message you to ask to reschedule. A lack of empathy, I think, is a, is a really big really big one, which manifests itself in, in different ways, whether that's like relationally not being able to look you in the eye and remember to ask you how your weekend was or, you know, just kind of treating you like crap in meetings and taking out whatever stresses they, they have on you. One person's bad manager could be quite a good manager for somebody else. But mm. I think that there are some really common traits that so many people that I interviewed brought up. 
So how do you deal with a difficult manager? Because I know for me, a bad manager honestly took away years of my life. Like I would say two to three years, I was like basically battling with serious mental health and very much fueled by a really, really toxic work relationship. It depends on what is going on because there is a big difference between a boss who's annoying that you want to just kind of like bitch about in the pub after work versus someone who is harassing you, someone who's actually abusive and and actually a bully. And I think the word bully kind of gets tossed around and has kind of like lost its actual meaning. But I think that instinctively we know the difference between those two extremes. But if you do have somebody who is just making things so difficult for you and really impacting your mental health, I mean, in all of this, I had the help of, of my therapist to help me kind of unpick it and had um, my, my partner to talk to about it as well. So I think having somebody, whether it's, you know, paid help, like a therapist or a best friend or your your mom or somebody who you can kind of talk to about it to kind of get some perspective on it is a really good first step. And then unpick when they do this, I feel this. Okay, why do I feel this? Doing that and trying to get to a place where you can understand that probably the majority of their behavior has absolutely nothing to do with you. Probably has absolutely nothing to do with your work performance um, or the way that you do your job and everything to do with their own kind of hangups, their own kind of emotional baggage, and probably the relationship that they have with their boss (laughs) and the pressure that they're getting from them. Yeah. You know, being a bit compassionate to the bosses because Mm -hmm. actually being a leader is also really challenging it's so hard and I know that I'm I'm definitely a flawed leader and I'm sure people that have worked for me will you know (laughs) be able to point out some things um but you know I what I loved in your book it says you know sometimes be a good leader you're not always the fun and popular one and what do you what did you mean by that and why was that an important point to include being a good manager I think I assume is like being a good parent you have to make decisions that are difficult. And if your primary focus is being fun or being liked, you're probably not going to be making very good decisions for your business. And you're probably not setting very good boundaries or leading by example either. Because if you have an office full of people who just want to be liked and please each other, I don't think anyone, there's no like inspirational quote about how that makes, that's where the magic happens, right? (laughs) That's that's not a thing. (laughs) So it's like, you're going to have to be a bit boring sometimes. And I used to get my feelings hurt. Like when I used to work at like younger companies and I was a, a young manager and all my team would go out for lunch and not invite me. And I'd be like, butthurt about it. Like, well, why don't they ask me to go down to Nando's? And it's like, <laughs> well, you're their boss. They don't want to bring their boss to Nando's, you know, unless you're buying and it was your idea. So like, that's not, that's not how it works. Right. So you, you're going to have to make tough decisions and have boundaries both socially and and on the information that you personally share you don't just get to be like fun boss lady or fun boss guy like that isn't where good work happens and that's not setting the right kind of messaging and examples for your team work isn't about trying to be liked 
It just isn't. And businesses are capitalist beasts. Everyone's just trying to make as much money as they can. And you can't do that when you're trying to just please everyone around you all the time. It's like, it's complicated, right? And everyone works for different reasons, but you're not going to get very far by just pleasing everyone around you. So this brings me on to difficult conversations, uh, another mm. really fascinating part of your book. What are three tips to navigate uh, difficult conversations better or even have the courage to even have them? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't involve drinking or any <laughs> other controlled substance. I think the first one, which is probably uh, the hardest one that I had to learn, when I was having a lot of really difficult conversations around one of my jobs with my manager and, and HR was involved, I found that the most kind of comforting, easy thing to do with all of these conversations was to just be honest. If you are trying to act a certain way, act how you think a corporate person would behave in this situation or how a boss lady would behave in this situation and use words or try to like go into some sort of uh, work manual and be like, okay, well, this is the kind of diagram of how a how negotiations work like if that's not like natural to you it's not gonna go well when you're in that room and you start to sweat and your adrenaline kicks in and you're like trying to like remember the script that you were supposed to say like that's not gonna go well <laughs> and I've tried that a lot of times and it just doesn't work so I think learning to be honest and honest enough right? Because it's not going in with your heart on your sleeve, sobbing and being like, I hate this. Like that also isn't going to get you anywhere, but it's like being honest enough, vulnerable enough, transparent enough to where you're not focusing on how you should be behaving and how you should be reacting, I think is really important. Another one is to remember that you don't have to just be locked in a room having a difficult conversation with somebody that you can't get out of. And this is something that I am still learning, but you can, if you're in an upsetting conversation with somebody, even if it's one that you initiated and you can feel that you're about to cry or because like people who can have a, like a debate without crying, I'm always like, that's really impressive because I don't know if I've got there yet. Um, but if you feel like you're about to like lose your shit, you can just say, and I write about this in the book a lot, like, I don't think that we're going to have the most productive conversation right now. And I really kind of need to park this, go away and think. And if we could reschedule for tomorrow, that would be really useful because I don't think that we're going to get anywhere with with this today or something along those lines whatever is kind of authentic and feels okay for you to say in that moment in time so giving yourself the kind of space to uh, react or not be in a really toxic situation where you feel like you just kind of have to like grin and bear it and while you're dying inside and you're unable to kind of focus and then the third thing to kind of keep in mind I think that is helpful with with these sorts of conversations is to not go in thinking that you know what the other person is going to say. You can be prepared for, okay, if they bring this thing up, well, then I have like the evidence for the time that they, you know, threw me under the bus in the meeting and I'm going to bring that up. That's where like preparing is useful. But but thinking that you know everything that they're going to say and kind of going in on the defensive and not taking into kind of consideration what this conversation might bring up for them 
kind of on like a, on a vulnerability level, if you're going in challenging and saying, you know, I, I don't think that you're being a very supportive manager right now, that might be a big attack on their identity because they might identify as being someone who is a very good manager. And if you have somebody <laughs> telling you that you're not, what is that going to bring up for them? Right. So I think going into these things with um, uh, giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, even when it's hard and going in with just a bit of empathy as well. Uh, will help. So they're not easy. <laughs> they're called difficult conversations for a reason. I think those points are brilliant. And I really loved the point where you said, you know, don't be a mind reader. It's like, well, you know, they should have known I hate, you know, fruit in the office and there's a fruit bowl there <laughs> and they're clearly doing it, you know, despite yes. me. It is so easy. And I think, and I, I have done this. I'm so guilty of this, of being angry at a leadership figure or my, my manager well, they should just know. I know this. They should just know. Why do I have to ask for this? They should just know. You know, they're just people. (laughs) And if you don't ask, how are they supposed to know? Yeah, maybe they're just a bit crap and they didn't think to ask that thing or they didn't anticipate your needs in a way that you probably would like, but they probably manage like seven other people, sometimes 15 other people, and you're just one of many. And so they might not be able to keep all of that in their head and do a good job, right? So sometimes you're going to have to help them out and just be like, look, I need to leave at 4 p.m. every Thursday so that I can go to therapy remember, like you might just have to do a bit of handholding. It's called managing upwards. Like you're probably going to have to do more of that than you want the kind of more and more senior you get in, in your career. And it sucks, but you know, they're just people. And there's a big difference between really aggressive bosses who are just not very nice and don't care about your feelings versus ones that are just trying to do their best. And they're just a bit crap and they forget stuff. Yeah, that is such a nice differentiator. Yeah, it really made me laugh that bit. Why is a five-year plan self-help bullshit? Because this (laughs) this is another part of the book that really made me giggle. Yeah, so I think before I had gone through this workshop that I had gone to that helped me formulate my own five-year plan, I was very judgmental and I just had this like really kind of like, well, that's just, that's just bullshit. That's just something that people just say and make up to make you feel bad when like New Year's resolutions, you know, that sort of thing. They're false milestones, right? It just became like a cliche to talk about, you know, your five-year plan. Well, what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? And, and I don't know, maybe that's just because I'm from California and I would used to hear that all the time. But now, after I had gone to to a workshop that I that I write about in the book where we were forced to forced, <laughs> we were not forced. It was suggested that we do a <laughs> journaling exercise where you write about it's called the obituary exercise, which sounds really dark. We were forced to write about our obituaries. Um, where you write about like, okay, if if we died today, what how would our obituary read? And then how would we want it to actually read? And we were meant to write about, you know, what do we want our life to look like in five years time, which was something I had actually not given that much thought to. And once I started to write that down, the things that came out of that really did. And I, (laughs) this sounds very dramatic, but they really did kind of change the overall trajectory 
of my life and the things that I realized that I wanted for myself. Um, so I, I no longer believe that having a five-year plan is I'm um, just kind of self-help bullshit. Um, instead, I think I think you can't just have a five-year plan. You can't just go, well, in five years time, I would like to live here and I would like to have an Oscar and I would like to, you know, have five kids. Like you can't, it's not just that it's okay. This is what I would like my life to look like in five years time. And what do I need to be doing now to get there? And then it's a combination of long-term goals milestones. What should I be doing about this in six months time? What should I be doing about this in six weeks time? What about six days time, six hours time? And constantly kind of checking in with yourself because goals change, right? We change, we evolve, and it's totally okay for your kind of goals and five-year plan to to kind of shift and evolve as well. This isn't about having like a fixed goal that we think is going to fix everything. And when we get there, oh, we'll finally be happy. It's not that. It's more so, okay, how do I want to feel in five years' time, right? And how do I want to feel on a daily, weekly basis? And is that possible right now? And it might not be possible because for me, it was like, well, I sure don't want to be in this job anymore, but I can't just quit overnight mm -hmm. and I need to work through some stuff because I knew that I couldn't just straight up quit my job because I didn't like my manager or the team that I was working on. I needed to work some stuff out and kind of come up with a more strategic plan. Um, yeah. So ultimately, you know, five-year plan is a good thing, but it's about perspective and milestones and a kind of strategy and how you want to feel and what the purpose of it all is rather than just being like an are setting an arbitrary goal. I think it's just really, again, powerful to talk about this because I think the wellness industry can put forth these quite perfected ideas and then you try to fit your life into them and you feel like a failure because you're like, <laughs> oh no, the five-year plan didn't happen. And so- yeah. Then there's this like I couldn't Marie Kondo my entire life. I'm an <laughs> idiot. Like, you know. <laughs> right. And I just, you know, your your approach to this is really relatable. And so whatever stage you're at, like there is something there to kind of help you along to the next step. Talking about, I guess, you know, let's say you are in a terrible situation right now. It yeah. is unrealistic just to quit today, as you said. Mm -hmm. You've got to kind of work things out. This is why your idea of smart goals was a brilliant part of the book. But you also talk about the energy project and this idea mm. of how you can start conserving your energy so we're not all working ourselves to the bone and then burning out and then not being able to achieve any of our goals because we're completely depleted. What is the route to more sustainable energy management? Selfishly, that was the kind of the pursuit of the book. And I, and I thought that I would just find a couple of people to interview who had burnt out over and over again, but then they figured it out and then they would share with me, this is how you don't do it. And then I could be like, brilliant, we solved it <laughs> and be done with it. But um, no, it turns out that that's not, that is a big, big problem that so many of us are dealing with. So I think what I have learned it's a, it's a really boring combination of things and, and self-care and of looking after your mental health. Um, so I think firstly, when it comes to kind of managing your energy, you need to understand why you're overworking yourself to begin with. I remember seeing somebody say on, on social media, like the key to stopping burning out is just to work less. And <laughs> like, yeah, but, 
but not because these are learned behaviors that we've learned over time and have developed over time and therefore are going to take a long time to unpick. So it's like, okay, you've exhausted yourself. Your mental health is hanging on by a thread. What is going on? What are you doing? And why are you doing that? And where does it come from? Um, One of my favorite interviews in the book is with a woman called Virginia, who was actually diagnosed with um, being a workaholic. And she shared with me some, some, you know, really harrowing stories from her own life, but was really open in the fact that she learned how to do that by her own, by viewing her own, you know, working class mother have to do that for survival. And she didn't really have the option to do otherwise. And, but she learned that from, from her mother. Right. And so it would be very easy just to go, well, just stop doing that. (laughs) But those are, those are really ingrained things, really ingrained messages that we've learned that when things, for example, when things get really tough, you, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and you work, you work your ass off to try to make it better. That's a really hard thing to just stop doing overnight. So I think learning, you know, what's driving your ambition, why you're working yourself like this and who it's for, what is it serving? Because it's serving something and you're trying to fill with a lot of addictions and that sort of thing. You're trying to Mm -hmm. fill something, right? So what is being so attached to the salary, this job title, what your boss thinks of you, what, what is fueling that? What's behind that? Why, like, why are you doing that? Right. And I think a lot of us, um, particularly women have, uh, no sense sometimes of when enough is enough, when we are good enough. Um, I I said earlier, our sense of, you know, from the movie, babe, that'll do pig. Like we don't know when that'll do. (laughs) Um, and usually I think it's, it's probably because our kind of barometer for, uh, our own self-worth and why we're doing something and what's going to make us feel good enough is kind of, we don't maybe know what it is and we're trying to maybe get that from an external factor. Right. So I think that that has a a really, really big part to play with, um, with burnout. So I think a lot of it comes down to the the kind of self-awareness and and the why, why are we doing this? What, what is it serving? And then being able to go, okay, okay, now, what do I do about it? Because it's it's very brave and wonderful to figure it out or to have a big enough sense of why, but then it's okay. What do you do about it? How much of how much of this can I control? How much of it can't I control? And what and like what can I do about it now? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think is the biggest kind of step. And then the rest of it is just kind of super boring, like on a daily basis, what do I need to do to look after myself in this, this shitty situation, right? Depending on what kind of situation that you're in. Really good starting points. If you wouldn't mind, um, I'd love you to finish the sentence I start. Okay. (laughs) Before I go to sleep, I. (laughs) Panic. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think I have a lot going on from both a work a work perspective, personal perspective. We just moved house and, and I, we have a lot of big like life changes kind of happening. So I think for, for me right now, it's, it's panic and, and a bit of anxiety, but in a way of trying to make sure that I'm doing it right. And because I'm spending so much time promoting this book at the moment, having to really go, 
am I doing the things that I know that I'm supposed to be doing? Am I applying the things that I'm, you know, telling other people to apply to their work lives, to my, my new work life? Um, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of, I have a lot of self-reflection <laughs> and a lot of um, panic going on in my head, but in a positive way, if that makes sense. <laughs> totally. And I think in all moments of transformation or great change, you kind of have those thoughts. And, and as you said, not all stress is bad stress. You know, that's yeah. another kind of nuance in the conversation. And not all anxiety is bad anxiety. Like it yeah. tells us something, right? Yeah. After I wake up, I... I mean, realistically, I have a cup of coffee and I look at my phone and I read the Daily Guardian briefing <laughs> and I try to be informed about what's going on, particularly in this terrible year of 2020, but then also kind of set myself up for what do I need to do that day? So nothing as glamorous as like... I immediately do yoga, but I, I, I have to, I'm not a morning person, so it takes me a while to transition. <laughs> the book I recommend the most is? I think right now I know a lot of women who are either pregnant or about to be parents or have young children. And I recommend Emily Oster's book. She has two books, one called Crib Sheet, one called Expecting Better. I recommend both of those a lot because I really like her different approaches on pregnancy and families. And it's all based in data and humor, which I love both of those things. Amazing. The mantra I live my life by is? That there's not just one way to do things. I have to remind myself that a lot. That's really lovely. And if you really knew me, you would know. Mm, that I'm not always as okay as I seem. <laughs> I feel like everybody could resonate with that. Well, thank yeah. <laughs> you so much for today's interview. It's been just brilliant. Uh, where can we find you and where can we find details for the book? And of course, I'll put this all in the show notes. But if anyone has any questions, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm pretty much the same on all social platforms. So I'm at um, Kate, so that's Kate with a C, C-A-T-E. Sevilla, S-E-V-I-L-L-A, on pretty much everything. And then for information on the book, best place to go would be my website, katesevilla.com forward slash book. Amazing. Um, well, thank you, because I feel like this has been kind of a therapy session. I'm like, wow, this happened, <laughs> uh, this happened. Yes. <laughs> no, I love it. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 